Our text is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the New Testament lesson, the letter to the church at Sardis. Sardis was an ancient and a glorious city. Uh, while it was still at this time a prosperous town, uh, most of its glory, its splendor was a thing of the past. It was once considered an almost impregnable, unbeatable military fortress, a stronghold. And yet, in spite of this, it fell twice in surprise attacks due to its lack of vigilance, to its overconfidence. Once in the 6th century B.C. and another time in the 3rd century B.C. And so the phrase, um, capturing Sardis, became something of a proverb. To capture Sardis meant to do the impossible. And so we'll look at the text under six headings. They're there in your outline. The address and the reality, the remedy, the remnant, lots of ours. The reality, the remedy, the remnant, the promises and the spirit. The promises and the spirit. The address, reality, remnant. No, address, reality, remedy, remnant. Promises, spirit. All right, so the address. The exalted Christ is the one addressing the churches, remember. And he describes himself here as the one who has. And because he has, he can give the sevenfold Holy Spirit to the church. He has the seven stars, which are the angels of the churches, and we saw that that probably refers to the church in its heavenly existence. The point here is very simple. Jesus is sovereign over the churches. He holds them. Yet, through the Spirit, He is near to us as our helper. He quickens us with His life. The reality, the second point, is... I know your deeds, as we're moving to the reality. I know your deeds. Now, this is not, as will become very clear, it's not a commendation. He says, you have a reputation or a name, in some translate, the word there is name. You have a name or a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. This is a biting evaluation of a church. They have a reputation before men. They have a name of being a living, vibrant church. Other Christians think the place is really happening. But the reality which Christ unmasks is quite different. He says, in fact, you're dead. It appears that just as the city of Sardis was living off a former but no longer existing fame, so also the church is living off a reputation which had stopped corresponding to reality. Sardis had a famous cemetery outside of town where it kept the graves of long dead kings. Christ is saying, contrary to your name or your reputation, you're more like the cemetery. It's a frightful evaluation, really. The, the church seems to have been deluded by its own reputation. 
And this is always a danger for us, whether as individuals or as churches. We can believe our own propaganda. You know, Proverbs says a man is tested, and so is an institution, is tested by the praise accorded to it. We can become seduced by an image that we're projecting for others. We don't even quite know we're doing this. We're not even fully self-conscious of it. We're seduced by our own reputations, and we come to embrace this mirage as the reality. Remember, one of the things we learn from these seven letters to the churches is that every human being, every person, and surely every church, is only who or what Jesus knows them to be. The only person we are is the person the risen Christ knows us as. There are no other persons. There are no other identities. And Jesus knows this church to be dead. And so it's, it's hearing him that delivers us. It's, it's hearing that kind of word from outside of our own ego that delivers us from self-deception. That's why it's important that Christ be risen, that he possess the Spirit, that he actually speak to you and to the church. Otherwise, we just collapse in on ourselves. Self-deception is a frightening thing, isn't it? I had a men- one of my professors, who was something of a mentor to me, did his doctoral dissertation, he was a philosopher, on the phenomenon of self-deception. Because it's, par- it's a paradox, isn't it? That the same person can be the deceiver and the deceived, and yet that's how elaborately uh, seductive our own hearts are. We can deceive us. You can deceive yourself and not know you did it. That's a frightful thing. We should be frightened of it. This is why we need to hear Jesus say to us, hey, I'll tell you how you are. I'll make an evaluation. If you've ever, I worked in the corporate world for many years. You, you, you get that yearly evaluation, it's really good. It's like a slap in the face. You realize, oh, oh, I'm not what I thought I was. So, this, the text here kind of calls us to a certain humility we have to hear. We're overmatched against our own weaknesses, we're always overmatched. And so the remedy, verse, verse 2, the third point here is remedy. And here we see that dead is a, is, is a, a little bit of a hyperbolic overstatement. The, this, this, the church is not actually dead, but it's in serious danger. And so the Lord says to them in verse 2, wake up. Become watchful. Vigilant. This is a church which has become very lethargic. Lethargic about the radical demands of the gospel. There's nothing that has sharper edges than the gospel. There's nothing more wonderful than it, but it is radical. And the, and the demands of the faith in the midst of a pagan culture, this church has forgotten them. And we, we have this tendency. This church seems to have come to terms with the culture. There's no evidence, notice this in this church, there's no evidence that they're being persecuted as there is in other churches. No mention. 
Perhaps there's no need for it because they've become an example of inoffensive Christianity. They're lively in reputation, but in reality, they're dead. They're a social organization. And so they're commanded in the text to strengthen what remains. People, practices, things that they've neglected. What remains and is about to die, the text says, because there's little time left. It's always about going back and, you know, when, when God says to us, wake up, he doesn't say, and launch out into a new venture. He, he, he says, wake up and then take the things that you're doing well and do them a little bit better. Strengthen the things that remain. Don't try and make yourself into a new human being next week. Find the things that remain. Strengthen those things. Prayer, scripture reading, worship, fellowship, service. It's not complicated. In fact, their near-dead condition here is described as their deeds. It's actually their deeds, which they should have performed. The text says they're, they're, they're not complete in the sight of my God, Jesus says that. Interesting, right? They're, this church obviously has deeds because they have a reputation. They have a name. But Jesus says your deeds are not full. They're not complete in the, in the eyes of God. And so waking up spiritually is about getting back to work. We've been redeemed. We've been redeemed by Jesus to be zealous for good deeds. There's not a call here to this church to a great deal of introspective navel-gazing. Right? They're, they're told, wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. Your deeds aren't complete. Your deeds are not complete. And the Lord continues in verse 3 with a, with a string of imperatives. Remember, or keep, and obey. Repent. Remembrance is critical in, if we're going to be renewed spiritually. It's vital. And this is a communal memory that's being called upon here. The church at Sardis has to remember what it received and what it heard. This is a reference to the gospel, to the apostolic tradition that they'd received and that they heard proclaimed in the church. In the church's teaching. What they heard from the mouth of the apostles. This is a large part of what we do here every week, right? It's what the church does. We're remembering. Collectively, corporately, covenantally, we are remembering the gospel. We are enacting it. We are celebrating it. We are hearing it. This is crucial because we forget. <laughs> because we're easily distracted. And because oftentimes our forgetting is, is somewhat willful. It's due to our, our, our weakened, sinful condition. So remembering afresh... Embracing the gospel is always the key to moving ahead. It's, it's crucial to get this paradox. We go forward in the Christian life only by going back. We go forward only by going back. We go forward only by going back to the gospel, back to scripture, back to prayer, back to spiritual disciplines, back to the basics. There is no new Fast track path forward. We go forward by remembering what we've received and what we've heard. And we're in desperate need of that renewal of our memories. So 
In this context, remembering always involves action. Action. And the church is called here to guard the gospel and its implications. Notice all of this is called repenting in the text. Waking up, strengthening what remains, remembering, keeping, all of that entails repentance. And repentance means a change of mind, a turning or a conversion of the mind. And repentance, it's a glorious thing, repentance. It's, it brings joy in heaven. More than 99 who need no repentance, right? It's a grand thing. And it's a gift of the Spirit. We received the gospel by the Spirit. You embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior by the Spirit. And we repent and we recover our zeal by the Spirit. And the, the Christian life is a continual turning, a continual repenting and renewing in the Spirit. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. And that's why he's pictured at the beginning of this letter as the one who holds the sevenfold Spirit of God. And so he gives them a warning. He says in verse 3, If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come against you. The city, the city fell asleep twice in its historical past and was caught off guard. And Jesus is saying to the church, don't be like the city. Don't be like Ephesus. You might remember the church of Ephesus. Jesus said, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your lampstand. I'm going to remove it. So Jesus is saying your smoldering, dying existence as a church will be removed if I have to come upon you as a thief. So wake up. Wake up. Fourth is a remnant. The majority had compromised in Sardis. Interesting, right? It's, it's a church with a great reputation in which the majority of people are compromised. But a few had not, Jesus says. Notice it's a few people. Uh, literally, this is a few names in Sardis. And here I want to point out what is Maybe the central idea of this passage is the idea of a name or names. It's threaded throughout the text. The word for reputation in verse 1 means name. Here there are a few names. You have a name of being alive, but you're dead. Here there are a few names who've not soiled their garments. These few people, these few names have lived up to the name of church. And it's clear that Jesus knows them. He knows the names of the remnant. And as we'll see later in the text, their names are in the book of life. And Jesus will confess their names, the names of the overcomers before the Father. So the text is sort of pounding us. And it asks us a pointed question as believers who confess Jesus. And the question is, is the name Christian the name placed upon you in your baptism, the name which you publicly affirm in your membership vows, is it something that we have by reputation? Or, or by the opinion of men? Or is the name Christian something we possess in substance, a reality visible to the eyes, the burning eyes of fire of the risen and exalted Christ? That's what this text is about. No one's disputing that the name Christian is publicly, civically placed on everybody here. 
But the text is saying, does the name correspond to the reality? And here at Sardis, there's only a few names who have not soiled their garments. And the text says, these ones will walk with me in white. Symbolizing victory, purity, celebration. And it points to the future. The hope of the gospel is to walk with Jesus in white. Holy fellowship with the risen Christ is the hope of the gospel. And if we have that hope, if that is our hope, that we want communion with this Christ who speaks in this text, then we're going to purify ourselves now. Remember what John says in his first epistle? He who has this hope purifies himself, even as Christ is pure. This remnant will walk with Christ, the text says, for they are worthy. You see that at the end of verse 4. Jesus himself is called worthy in chapter 5. And so what what does it mean to say they're going to walk with Jesus in white because they're worthy? Well, it refers to faithful witness in the face of a hostile culture. There's a couple promises made to these people here, and that's our fifth point. The first one is this. It's in verse 5. The one who conquers or overcomes will be dressed in white. We can see a little bit more about what these white garments are here. In chapter 6 in Revelation, we'll get there in a while, but there's martyrs under the altar in heaven, and they're given white robes. And in chapter 7, the, this multitude that comes out of the great tribulation, probably also martyrs, have washed their robes, the text says, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so, white symbolizes victory and purity in general, but Particularly here, it symbolizes fidelity in facing the refining fire of a hostile culture. White is the color of martyrs, of those who come through tribulation. And so, the majority in this church have capitulated, but there's a few names. There's a few names, but Jesus calls to everyone and says, look, there's a few, but I'm asking all of you to wake up and to conquer, to share in the rewards the white garments of the faithful witnesses that have paid with their lives. You know what's wonderful about this text? Not only the fact that this is a a virtually dead church which the risen Christ addresses. That's a great sign of hope. He addresses dead churches. He doesn't just show up at the hip churches. He addresses Sardis. But it's also this. He addresses the... There's two camps, right? There's those who have compromise and there's there's the few who are walking in white but he says to the majority hey change to the second camp you can move over and have your garments purified and thus receive the promises right at the bride at the bride at the marriage supper of the lamb and we see this later in revelation 2 she's clothed in white linen Bright and pure, the text says. And what's the white linen? It's the righteous deeds of the saints. Faithfulness, fidelity, make your deeds complete in the sight of God. Yes, Jesus' blood washes your, your, your linen, your, your garments clean. But the garments are also kept clean, if you will, renewed by the righteous deeds of the saints. 
So test everything. I've said this throughout this, this series on these, on these letters. When we, when we look, this is a text that says Jesus is going to test us. He's going to refine us. He's going to talk to us about our faithful witness in the face of a culture. So learn to, by his word, test everything. Criticize everything. Let the gospel challenge everything. And the second promise here is I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. The book of life in Revelation, which is mentioned four or five times, always refers to the elect. And so it's created no little controversy that perhaps there's a possibility that a name that was in the book of life could be erased. But that's not what this text implies. What what is almost certainly the background here is that the faithful Christians, the ones refusing to compromise, they face deletion, erasure, from a synagogue register. We've already seen in the other letters the hostility to the Jewish community in Asia Minor with some of these Christians. And we know, we know that there was a prominent Jewish community at Sardis. We also know that by the end of the first century, the synagogues in Asia Minor, these synagogues in, in, in towns like Sardis, they were using the following curse against Christians. Let me read it to you. May the Nazarenes and the Menim, Menim is heretics, basically. May the Nazarene and the, and the Menim suddenly perish and may they be blotted out of the book of life and not enrolled with the righteous. So what is going on here is Jesus telling the remnant, he's telling the overcomers, look, they can delete you from the Jewish register, from the synagogue book, and they can plead, as their curse does, for your deletion from the heavenly book of life, but I am the risen Christ, and I will never blot your name out of the book of life. And so Jesus continues and says, more than that, I will acknowledge the overcomer's name before my father and his angels. The language is such that, Jesus, that it implies that Jesus will read out your name from the book of life be to his father on the last day. The names of the overcomers, the conquerors, the followers of Jesus are first written in the book of life and then they are confessed and read out of that book at the final judgment. Jesus will confess your name, your reality, not just your reputation, but your name, the substance of it before his Father on the last day. And finally, the Spirit. This, the, all the letters close the same way. Let, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But this closing exhortation is especially relevant here because the, the, the letter opened with Jesus saying, I'm the one who holds the sevenfold Spirit. So why is this emphasized here? Well, I think it's, it's really simple, right? It is the Spirit who rouses us from our lethargy. In the spiritual life, we all find ourselves at various times in a sort of spiritual sardis. Do we not? We doze off. We get sleepy. We get numb. We lose a day, and then we lose a week, and then we've lost a month. 
We grow weary, weak, we forget, we wander, we compromise. There's nobody here that hasn't spent time in Sardis spiritually. And we find that we need to wake up. That, that, that we're weak and we need to be strengthened. That we've forgotten and we need to remember. That we've wandered and we need to repent. That we've gotten soiled and we need to cleanse our garments in the blood of the Lamb. We need perpetual renewal or reviving by the Spirit of God. You know, sometimes I think if there were no Holy Spirit, everything would go on exactly as it does in the churches. There would be absolutely no difference. You'd have the same barbecues, the same cookouts, the same bake sales, the same meetings, the same everything. If the Holy Spirit completely vanished out of existence tonight, well, you know, you would think something could change. We desperately need this perpetual infilling of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit grants us renewal, grants us revival. And the Spirit here must never be torn away from Jesus. Remember, it's Jesus who holds the Spirit. There are people who seek the Spirit as if it's a, a giver of a whole bunch of other kinds of experiences. We seek Jesus Christ. He gives us the Spirit. That's what we need. And we, why do we need this? Well, we're particularly in need of it so that we don't have just a reputation for being alive. But we have the reality Right? We need this. This is dynamic energy. Living, working power of the Spirit of God. This is how Jesus comes to you. you know, Paul says in Ephesians, I pray that the glorious Father would strengthen you with power so that, but through His Spirit, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts. This is the heart of what it means to pray or to be a Christian. To be strengthened with power by the Spirit so that Jesus might inhabit your heart. And this enables us to, to fill up our incomplete works, our, our halting works, our, 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 our neglected works in the sight of God. This is the Spirit that enables us to keep our garments unsoiled and to bear that great name, that great name, Christian, with honor, Confessing Christ before men so that he'll never blot your name out of the book of life and will confess your name before his Father and his angels when he comes in glory. Amen.